G'day you mob and welcome to this episode of The Goss. I am your host Pete and this is Aussie English, the number one place for anyone and everyone wanting to learn Australian English. So, in this episode of The Goss, guys, I sit down with my dad and I talk all about how to clone a dinosaur. So, we've all seen that movie, at least I assume, uh, Jurassic Park. I think it came out in 93 when I was a little tacker. I think I had like, I don't know, it's probably like six years old. Very young kid, but I love that movie. Absolutely fell in love with dinosaurs and them extracting DNA of the dinosaurs out of amber, out of the insects that were trapped in amber, and then creating this crazy park where all kinds of stuff goes wrong. Anyway, since then, it's probably been, what, 27 years, there's been lots of debates about whether or not this would be possible to extract DNA of anything out of amber. Today, we talk about that. And then what you would actually need in order to be able to clone a dinosaur if, if, if it were possible. And then also the future of computing uh, large data systems and what that could potentially mean for biology, ecosystems, um, you know, genetic engineering, cloning, everything like that. So, without any further ado, guys, smack the bird. Let's get into it. All right, Dad. Tally ho. What's the next one? Um, you got heaps today. No, I think that I'm just about out. I think. Hang on. No, the others were my. Um, uh, the breaking news has sort of disappeared. There's a whole lot of crap in there now. That's you know, just COVID, COVID, COVID. So. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that we, we you talked about earlier about COVID is that now New South Wales has more active cases of COVID. Yeah, per day than Victoria. Mm, who's laughing uh, now, guys? Yeah, well, yeah, but <laughs> um, fun at us yeah, and- we're still in the sort of yeah the single digits or low teens. Yeah. But uh, that has increased the pressure on Daniel Andrews, the Premier of Victoria, to yeah. reduce the restrictions. Where they're saying, look, Victoria is now potentially in a better position than New South Wales. And New, and South, New South Wales, Wales doesn't have anywhere near the restrictions for, of lockdown and, that we do. So It's such a hard game to play. I can't imagine being that a leader in that sort of it's a position. It's a lose-lose no matter what happens. Yeah, because I think and Britain's in that position too, where Boris Johnson is currently faced with having to decide whether or not to mm. lock down the place. And I think the doctors just told him, you know, numerically, if you lock down for just two weeks, you'll save 7,000 lives by yeah. December. Yeah. And it's it's like, what do you do in that situation? where you are effectively fighting people's short-term versus long-term um, interests. So, I'm sure the average Brit is thinking, you know, screw that. I don't want to have to deal with that. But if you said to them, all right, well, you're the your grandparents 7, die. Yeah, yeah. or you're, yeah, you're, you're one of the 7,000. I'm sure they would change their mind. So, yeah, I, I don't know what you do in that position, but- I can't imagine Dan Andrews. How many days in a row has he been working now? He must be like, um, I'm just so over this. He, he hasn't had a day off <laughs> since last year. Yeah. Um, because he was, you know, with the bushfires that started in December. Jesus. Uh, in Victoria. Yeah. Uh, they started earlier than that in New South Wales and Queensland. going from like September, uh, yeah. October, wasn't yeah, it? Exactly. And which were, exactly. and we're, all of a sudden, I remember we were talking about that in the first Goss episode, mm, or the sec- first, yeah. second one. Yeah. And now we're back to we're the same season, like bracing for, for that to happen again. Yeah, well, fortunately, we've had a, um, a wet winter and early spring yeah. in eastern Australia. Which well, is, and the bushfires from last year, which probably cleared away. Well, yeah, they, yeah <laughs> a lot the, of the, the fuel- one good thing that comes out of those is that it blows out the fuel for the next few years. But yeah. we've also had a wet year, which has been good for two reasons. One is obviously it's broken the drought in northern New South Wales and southern Queensland, and uh, 
there's just been more rain around, so every, you know, there's not the amount of dry material around. Do you remember that ad that was for, I think it was for corn, and there's these um, this this guy sitting on his old outback station um, house in his chair on the deck, um, looking out, and it's just like really dry. And there's dust everywhere, you know, the tumbleweeds are blowing past. And he starts hearing rain. Tumbleweeds in Australia. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Probably was was in the ad. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But rain starts falling on the roof and you hear him yell out that, Marge, Marge, the rains are here, the rains are here. And then it's like the shot zooms out and reveals there are two kids out the, at the top of the house eating corn yeah. outside of the window <laughs> and the whole point of the ad is the corn's so juicy yeah. all the water's yeah. like falling <laughs> onto on the, the on the yeah. on the corrugated iron roof mm. yeah, yeah i remember that ad yes i do i had a good story here that was talking about um the first for the first time scientists have successfully extracted dna from insects embedded in tree resin Mm. So, this is sort of reminiscent of the this idea behind Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park, isn't it? Yeah. Which is, for anyone wondering, complete BS in terms yeah. of well, it's not yeah, possible. It, yeah, sorry to you know, remove you from that, but there was a really good documentary made a few years after Jurassic Park, which went through each of- They claimed there were seven steps that needed to be taken. Jurassic Park Scientific, did, or the no, scientists did? the scientists said there, would be, there were seven things that needed to happen in order for Jurassic Park, you know, the concept of recreating an animal out of, you know, DNA that had been trapped in resin. Um, and they went and debunked each of the seven as to why, under current technology and understanding, it couldn't happen. Yeah. Uh, so, it was a really interesting one, but- that was what twenty something years ago. Well, I imagine you would and, have. I mean, you're a you know, a DNA you, you need, <laughs> gene jockey. I'm not. You but. need the dinosaurs there. You need a mosquito or some sort of an insect to have consumed um, yes. DNA or biological material from those dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. You need that material to have survived inside of the insect intact. Yes, which you would assume is potential, but it's not going to be very long. You would imagine it's going to get digested and broken down pretty quickly. Yeah. And then you need it to land on a tree where the sap's coming out. <laughs> you need the sap to completely cover the animal mm-hmm. and for that to be then saved by falling onto the ground and becoming fossilised. Yeah. And then for you to find that. And the problem is, I think, too, you need the DNA to survive inside of the amber for millions, well, uh, tens talking, of millions, hundreds of millions of, of years, right? More than 65 Park, million years. 70 million years, but- which is an impossibility, um, I think, at least as yeah. far as we know. And that was what this study was sort of looking at. They had trouble getting DNA out of these small beetles that have been covered in resin two to six years ago. So, the samples have been collected and stored for two to six years. And the study had all these issues. I think they were first trying to use ethanol to dissolve the amber and that was affecting right. their DNA. Then they had some issues with the polymerase chain reactions, the PCRs that they were using to try and amplify the DNA. These are all very technical terms, but to sort of break that down, a PCR is- (laughs) This is hard enough to learn after you've finished a master's in- um, in, in biology, Let's but- Try explaining it to layperson's uh, yeah, You terms. extract DNA from the cells of an organism, whether it's a plant or a human. So, you can effectively put it through a- like a cooking process to, that takes the DNA out of the cell. It separates it mm. itself out so that you end up with pure DNA, except that it's chopped up and fragmented. And the PCR, what the PCR does is split the um, double helix of DNA and then replicate it by copying 
each of those individual strands and turning those into two more double helix strands that they can then divide and then yes. replicate. Yeah. And so the, the genius in that was the guy, and it was a guy in um, Melbourne who invented it. Sanger sequencing, yeah. yeah. Which was that you're using a particular bacteria to allow you to do it initially, and they could turn it on and off just by raising and lowering the temperature. Yeah. And so every time they raised the temperature, it stopped. They lowered the temperature, it started. And so they could just they could just multiply these replications yeah. just by raising and lowering the temperature in the- in Well, the and sort of, to sort of go on a tangent, this is how I imagine they're doing all of these uh, COVID tests. What they'll actually be doing is taking people's um, genetic samples effectively. So swabbing mm-hmm. their mouths or their nose, pulling out um, whatever's in there in terms of viruses- and then denaturing the DNA, pulling it apart, sucking it out of the sample, particular- amplifying, and then, yeah, putting it through a PCR process using what we call primers, which are certain small coded things that we've made, sequences of DNA that we've, we've produced that only latch on to specific areas of DNA from a certain organism. And only if they find that DNA present in these samples will they replicate and yeah. then you can- test and see, oh, there's that sequence in this sample so that that means the DNA of this organism was in that sample. Right. And so, that's what they're doing for the COVID test. They'll just be PCRing it yeah. and then seeing is there a presence absence of COVID virus DNA. So, yeah, it is, it's a pretty cool test because it's just so quick. It takes mm. like 30 minutes for you to run a PCR where it's just the temperature is going up and down and causing the DNA to come apart, to get replicated, to go back together- to then come apart again, yeah. replicate again, and each time it just goes up, obviously, exponentially. And then after that, you just test. You say, what do we have the presence of any of these samples we were chasing with those little primers, the scissors looking for yes. that DNA? Yeah. But the, the reason that it's so difficult is that DNA has a half-life of 521 years. So, that we like to think, you know, when we talk about the genome, so that is- all DNA in an organism that codes for proteins. Well, I guess it's uh, it's the entire, um, what would you call it? The entire protein chain. Yeah. It's not a single chain. It's many, many different ones. You know, all of your chromosomes are effectively individual tra- chains. So, yes. you've got, you know, yeah. 20, 26 of them or whatever pairs, it is. 23 so of them, yeah. I should know this better than <laughs> yeah. you. Uh, you went yeah. on rodents. They have <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of chromosomes. No, boy, yeah, dozens. <laughs> so- but they break up. And so, you don't actually have a single strand of DNA. You've got many. Yeah. And then when it's taken out of you- and most of it's junk anyway. Yeah. But when it's taken out of you, it starts breaking into smaller and smaller parts. And so, every 521 years, like uranium, right? If you've got a thousand atoms of uranium in whatever it is, you know, tens of thousands of years, it's 500 and then 250 and then- yes. until to, to the point that there's nothing left. It's the same with DNA where if you had- you know, strands that are hundreds of thousands of base pairs long in 520 years, they're all half that length on average. In another 520 years, they're half that length again until you get to the individual components. And then you would imagine they just break down into atoms. And so, the reason that we could never get dinosaur DNA out of something that's a fossil is because even if the DNA was there, it would be broken down so far that you would never be able to reconstruct the actual sequence, the actual DNA, um, the genome of the animal. You would just have, you know, the individual parts and the the pieces of the jigsaw and you wouldn't know how to put it back together. 
And so, that breaks down within, I think it's like 500,000 to a million years. That's sort of the max. It's just disappeared. Gone. Yeah. After yeah. that point, there's just nothing coming out of it. And I had that sort of trouble with specimens that were preserved that were only 120 years old. Yeah. Although they had- These were museum specimens I was trying to get DNA out of to compare them to, um, you know, contemporary- Yes. Um, individuals from those species or extinct species. Um, but even that was difficult just because- the conditions that certain samples are kept under can degrade the DNA right. further with sunlight, with, yeah. you know, arsenic and other things that are put onto the specimens that destroys it as well. Yes, so when those samples were being taken, they were just trying to keep the skins, the pelt and the fur yep. um, and the skeletons. They weren't trying to retain DNA. I had no they idea. understand what yeah. DNA was. So, uh, and even 50 years ago when people did understand what DNA was, I don't, don't think they were, you know, contemplating the importance of, of retaining good cell structure so yeah. that you could get complete bits of DNA. They were just saying, well, let's just fix this because really what they wanted was the skeletons and the skin. And when you so say fix, you mean- Fix as in- Not repair. Uh, yeah, not repair as in uh, stopping any uh, degradation uh, so breakdown after it's- treating like, it in some way treating that it with all bugs sorts of or other things chemicals. aren't going to eat them. Yeah. <laughs> it is an interesting field of study though, and the most interesting stuff I think comes out of- um, Places like Siberia, you know, and and we caves in Australia, frozen. where you find megafauna that yeah. are this maybe tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years old, and there is still the possibility to yes. pull the DNA out of those things. And I mean, you know, there are people who want to clone the woolly mammoth and the rhinoceros and even the thylacine. Yeah. And if that ends up happening, it will rely on being able to pull out intact, high quality DNA from specimens that are hundreds to potentially tens of thousands of years old. Mm. And then not only just being able to get the DNA out, but being able to somehow reconstruct it into something that is biologically well, that was, feasible. That's what the, um, a lot of that documentary on you know, debunking uh, that whole Jurassic Park story was, yeah. was about the each of those steps from- uh, even if you assume you can extract bits of DNA- each of the steps to go from there and to producing a living organism out of it uh, was was really interestingly done. It was an hour of really cool science. Yeah, uh, where and it was one of those things where they they weren't they were explaining why you couldn't do something with science rather than why you could, which was an interesting way of looking at it. You wonder what the difference is going to be once we get enough computing power. And mm -hmm. algorithms and AI. So, you can rebuild. I think you'll be able to rebuild anything. You'll be able to create anything because you'll effectively have a an algorithm or AI that can run so many tests virtually in the, you know, instantaneously yeah. to do enough tests to be like, what happens when the DNA is this coded? What, what happens? And so, it just needs to go from- you know, if a, if a bird has come from, affected, evolved from dinosaurs, the machine just needs to work out how do we change the bird's DNA to create something that is viable mm. in that is the shape and size and appearance of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> and you would imagine, you know, it's just a matter of computing power. Yeah. That I if think you it's can work out the way to run enough tests on having a viable animal like mm. that virtually- then you just have to be able to clone it somehow once you've once you've worked that out. So yeah, I think the um, yeah that's talking about something that's millions of years old. The other aspect that would be more um, appropriate, I think, in terms of 
relatively recently extinct things. You're talking about the thylacine, which yeah. Yeah, the last one of those died just under 90 years ago. 1935, but, I think. But yeah. there will be thousands of samples, biological samples, sitting in museums. And each one of those might be degraded, so you can't do it. But once you've got that computing power that yeah. just says, we'll take all of these things, and then they can start matching up. And you go, well, we get this much from this one, and then we get that little bit from that one. So there's a bit of overlap. Now, we know that those two bits there, so we add those together and we've got that. And you just keep doing that until you can reconstruct all of the chromosomes. Well, and know. the interesting thing beyond that would be how do we then insert, if, if you get it down, okay, we can put together a genome of a yeah. thylacine. We can then clone it by effectively inserting that genome into a blank egg of the closest living relative, you know, a quoll or something or Tasmanian a wombat or devil. Tasmanian devil yeah. so that it effectively, you know, um, gives birth to a thylacine. Yes. All we need after that is to work out how do we insert diversity, genetic diversity into that population. We don't want just the same individual thylacine no, replicated the whole time because it'll go extinct straight away again, you know, from other problems after a few generations. It'd be like me having children with myself yes. if that were possible. <laughs> the next thing will be having the computing power to work out how do we add differences in the, in the genome, in the DNA mm. that won't be deleterious, that won't cause any negative side effects and will- effectively fast-tracking evolution itself because, yeah. you know, yeah. Na yeah. natural selection would weed that out. But it'll be interesting to work out if computing power can ever do that, both for extinct animals and animals that are going extinct. Because if you could just suddenly be like, we can digitally come up with genetic diversity that we can then insert into embryos and insert that into the animal and then those animals will have- you know, so much diversity that if they were to interbreed, they're not going to have genetically deformed right. things, yeah. congenital diseases and other problems. if the changes slightly, then yeah. there'll be enough diversity so there'll be some individuals that'll survive. Because you can imagine, I mean, it, again, be, it's just a, just a question of computing power that's yeah, holding without, us back. Without doing it artificially, there must be a lot of uh, research going into that with- yeah, severely endangered species. Think of the orange-bellied parrot, which yeah. got down to a handful of breeding pairs. And, you know, then there was a, you know, a breeding program, you know, several breeding programs in captivity to release them back into the wild. There must be an enormous amount of tracking diversity in those so that you are trying to crossbreed with as diverse a population as possible, rather than going, well, these are the two super birds. We're going to breed everything from them, yeah. which means that you get all of them after that, become super birds, but then if anything changes or you get suddenly go, oops, there's a few little mutations in there that, you know, when you put two and two together, you get dead. <laughs> so. Well, that's kind of the problem we're facing, though, right? Where we're at, I don't know if the science says we're in a mass extinction event or not, at least based technically on the definition of the term. Yes. I assume that it, that we are, though I don't know what how you define it and what, what the criteria well, are. Well, the problem we have, just to interrupt you with that, I think the problem we have with that is that we have retrospectively defined, loosely defined a mass extinction event yeah. for things that happened millions of years ago or at least tens of thousands of years ago in some cases. Whereas what we're looking at now are things that are happening in decades, yeah. not in over thousands or millions of years. So- yeah, it's hard to define, you know, what the number, you know, the loss of a particular number of species in an area in a year or 10 years, is that a mass extinction or is that just a blip in the radar or is it something worse? But it is interesting to think about what humanity will be able to do in the future once 
once and when and if we get this sort of technology issue, I mean, we get through COVID and, and you know, the world pulls through <laughs> well, and keeps advancing technologically. Ironically, I think there's been more money put into DNA research in the last six months than there has been in the six wow. years before that because- as you've already identified, a lot of the identifying the virus is about understanding its DNA, and that's yeah. easy to do. Um, but then trying to find solutions to that, most of those are about manipulating DNA in various organisms and or the virus itself that will allow us to create either a treatment or a cure. Um, and so it's a, you know, a huge amount of effort going into just understanding viral DNA which has got to pay off in other areas eventually. Yeah, but I wonder what we're going to be able to do in terms of rejuvenating the world's habitats and, you know, ecosystems mm. after we destroy them. Because at least at the, at the moment, we think when they're gone, they're gone forever. But you wonder at what point that won't be true because we'll have, you know, gone. we'll have surpassed a certain technological limit that will allow us to use technology to repair ecosystems because mm. again you imagine it's just a question of data computing power and technology in terms of you know cloning things and being able to do it yeah and yeah it'll be crazy but moving on to the the covid and the virus you wonder looking back at say world war Two, i think we see that that war was horrible hundreds of millions of people died but we got things like the jet engine out of it and i Rockets. think you know, yeah, and a lot of surgery yeah. that, that, that came out of it from, um, I think most surgery was actually improved because of wars, both directly and indirectly, because you had so many people maimed all the time yeah. that doctors could just willy-nilly have to try new things to try and fix people and, and help mm. them survive. You wonder what's going to come out of the amount of effort and resources that we're currently putting in against COVID, the virus. I mean, not just- what we'll be able to do in terms of dealing with COVID, but are there other technologies and things that are going to come out of all the billions of dollars that we're currently throwing at this issue? Because yeah. we don't know if it's going to last for four or five years like the Second World War. It could keep going for the rest of our lives. But you would imagine that there's going to be certain advances that will be made here that are pro probably unforeseen that, that may not have anything to do with viruses in the yeah. future. Yeah. Well, um Spanish flu is a good example of that, that, you know, 100 years ago uh, killed more people than COVID has currently killed uh, around the world when the world had a much smaller population. Um, but from that, people started working on developing uh, a greater understanding of what influenza was uh, and creating vaccines for it. Yeah. We still have tens of thousands of people a year dying from influenza, uh, but we can save millions of lives a year because we have a, a vaccine for it. And I think the same thing will happen with COVID. You know, it's just another form of a, you know, a, flu, a flu virus. So we'll eventually come up with vaccines for that and we'll save them. But lots of other things have come out of that as well. We understood a whole lot more about um, vaccines uh, with flu because the original vaccines that were coming out for things like smallpox and so on were smallpox is a very complex organism in comparison with the flu virus. And so it mutates. It's an old, ancient thing. It's large. It's complex. It mutates very slowly. And so a smallpox vaccine 
worked for a hundred years. Well, the, flu vaccine, there, the vaccine for smallpox originally used to be that they would pick the scabs off yeah. the pox, and crush scratch, them up and, and get scratch. you to sniff them or yeah, scratch it into scratch your body. Your yeah. And so, you would just get effectively a, a small, small inoculation dose. of it. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Me and Noah, he's here as well, smacking the microphone with his spoon. That was another episode of The Goss. Don't forget, guys, if you want to get access to all of The Goss episodes, the transcripts, the MP3s, the videos, the entire episodes from one to, I think we're up to like 40-something now. Yeah, that's it, mate. Um, just go to aussieenglish.com.au and you can sign up for those. Anyway, I'm Pete, your host. This has been another Aussie English episode. It's a pleasure and I'll see you soon. Music